You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 438 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with the last episode, we got James Longstreet to Knoxville in November 1863. But once there, he decided he needed more men if he was going to have much hope of successfully ejecting Ambrose Burnside from the town. So, Longstreet asked Braxton Bragg for more men, but with Ulysses S. Grant clearly almost ready to launch the long-awaited federal attack at Chattanooga, Braxton Bragg, who by this point was heavily outnumbered by Grant, had no troops to spare to send to Longstreet. That meant Old Pete was going to have to make do at Knoxville with what he had. The prospects of starving Burnside out of Knoxville weren't very promising, and besides Longstreet's own logistical situation and Bragg's dilemma down at Chattanooga meant that old Pete needed to win a quick victory, so he began casting about for a way to eject the Yankees from Knoxville by force. The obvious place to strike the Federals was at the earthwork fortification that the Confederates, when they had controlled Knoxville, had named Fort Loudon, but which the Yankees had renamed Fort Sanders after one of their fallen officers. The Federals had strengthened the works, but the rebels believed the fort did have one glaring weakness. Although it was perched on a 200-foot-tall hill, there was an area of dead ground in front of it that should allow a large body of troops to approach Fort Sanders relatively safely. Using that dead ground about 200 yards from the fort's parapet as a sheltered staging area, the Confederates could then rush forward directly toward a projecting angle of the works, where the defenders would be able to bring the least firepower to bear. Confederate artillery officer Edward Porter Alexander considered this weakness little short of an engraved invitation to assault the fort. Alexander said, quote, It would have been impossible, I think, to find on the continent another earthwork so advantageously situated for attack. No military engineer could ask for an easier task. 
Be that as it may, when Longstreet, on November 21st, asked Lafayette McClaws if he thought his division could carry Fort Sanders in a night assault, McClaws, knowing that night assaults usually quickly broke down into chaos, said he was skeptical about his chances. However, the next day, an excited staff officer announced that he had found a hill over on the other side of the river from which Confederate artillery could bring Fort Sanders under fire. Longstreet jumped on this news and ordered a skeptical Alexander to get some guns across the river and up on that hill ASAP. That was easier said than done, since Alexander and his men had to haul the guns across the river in a makeshift ferry boat, then cut a road through the woods and drag the pieces up to the hilltop. Knowing all too well the poor quality of his long-range ammunition, Alexander had serious misgivings about this whole enterprise, but nevertheless he got started preparing a battery position on the hilltop bright and early on Monday, November 23rd. All that day and all night, without pause, and most of the next day, the Confederate artillerymen worked. Finally, late on Tuesday afternoon, November 24th, as the Battle of Lookout Mountain was coming to a close 100 miles away down at Chattanooga, here Porter Alexander reported to Longstreet that the guns were in position and ready to open fire on Fort Sanders at first light the next morning. When Porter Alexander sent word that all was ready to begin the long-range bombardment of Fort Sanders, James Longstreet told him the attack had been postponed because he had just received word that Bragg was sending him reinforcements after all. As you guys will recall, Bragg had decided to gamble and further weaken himself at Chattanooga by sending Patrick Claiborne's and Bushrod Johnson's divisions to Longstreet at Knoxville in the hopes that the additional troops would allow Old Pete to win a quick victory there at Knoxville, and in that way, throw a wrench in Grant's plans at Chattanooga. Naturally, Longstreet decided to hold off on doing anything more at Knoxville until those reinforcements arrived on the scene. However, as y'all know, only two brigades of Bushrod Johnson's division had boarded the trains and set off for Knoxville before Bragg stopped the operation, because the long-awaited federal attack at Chattanooga had finally kicked off. That meant Longstreet would only be getting a portion of the reinforcements he was expecting. However, late on the afternoon of November 25th, About the time the Federals at Chattanooga were beginning the advance that would take them to the top of Missionary Ridge, the first of those Confederate reinforcements did begin to arrive at Knoxville. And with them came Brigadier General Danville Ledbetter. Ledbetter was a native of Maine who had graduated third in the West Point class of 1836. In the 1850s, he was stationed at Mobile, Alabama, and in 1857, he resigned his commission to serve as Alabama's chief civil engineer. Deciding to follow his adopted home state out of the Union, he offered his services to the Confederacy in 1861. 
Ledbetter had served as Bragg's chief engineer, and in that capacity, interestingly enough, he was the rebel officer behind choosing the site of and drawing up the original plans for the construction of the former Fort Loudon, now Fort Sanders. So Longstreet assumed, of course, that if anyone should know the best way to take the fort, it would be Ledbetter. Ledbetter, however, told Longstreet that, especially with the work the Federals had done to strengthen it, Fort Sanders was much too strong to attack, and that Old Pete would do better to find another spot to launch an assault, perhaps at the opposite end of the lines. With the arrival of the two brigades he did receive as reinforcements, Longstreet had been planning to launch an attack on the fort the very next morning. But, after Ledbetter's warning, Old Pete issued orders postponing the assault. The next day, the 26th, while Bragg's troops at Chattanooga were retreating after the previous day's debacle on Missionary Ridge, at Knoxville, Longstreet and Ledbetter rode to the spot Ledbetter thought would be a better place to launch an attack. When they got back to headquarters, Longstreet sent word to Porter Alexander to drag the guns off the hill, ferry them back across the river, and get them into position to support this newly planned attack. Well, after having expended so much effort into getting the guns where they were, Alexander was, in his own words, disgusted at learning it had all been for naught. The next morning, Friday, November 27th, while Patrick Claiborne was holding off fighting Joe Hooker at Ringgold Gap, Longstreet and Ledbetter took division commanders McClaws and Jenkins, along with several brigade commanders, out to look at the spot the newly planned attack would be made on the federal lines. Somehow, though, with the other officers there to ask questions and point out problems, the spot didn't look so promising anymore, and in the end, Longstreet called it off and decided that an assault would be made on Fort Sanders after all. Naturally, that decision meant new orders were issued to Porter Alexander, telling him to get his guns back across the river and up to the hilltop. After laboring for hours in a cold driving rain, Alexander was able to report the guns were ready for action by noon on Saturday the 28th. That had not been quick enough for Longstreet, who during the night had issued orders to Lafayette McClaws to have his division ready to attack at daybreak on the 28th. However, when the rain showed no signs of stopping, Longstreet had told McClaws to hold off until the weather broke. However, the weather still hadn't broken by noon, And in addition, a dense fog had rolled in and blanketed the landscape so that Fort Sanders wasn't even visible from the Confederate lines. Longstreet therefore ordered the attack put off until the next morning, Sunday the 29th. That Saturday afternoon, McClaws and Alexander conferred and worked out a carefully planned timetable for coordinating the artillery bombardment with the advance of the rebel infantry. All, it seemed, was finally in readiness for the big assault on Fort Sanders the next morning. That evening, however, Longstreet sent out a change of orders. Instead of a daylight attack supported by artillery, 
he now wanted an assault to be made in the darkness, just before dawn, to take advantage of the element of surprise. Bizarrely, though, Old Pete called for the 6 a.m. surprise infantry attack to be preceded by an operation at 10 o'clock Saturday night to drive in the Yankee picket line, which would only serve to tip off the enemy that something was afoot. As it turned out, the Federals in the lines at Knoxville had been fully alerted to the fact something was going on since about 3 o'clock Saturday afternoon when they observed McClaw's troops forming up for the attack. Consequently, that evening and throughout the night, Federal artillery pounded away at the Confederate lines in an obvious sign the Yankees knew something was up. Meanwhile, the rebel guns remained silent because Alexander's new orders called for the Confederate artillery's only role in the attack to be the firing of three rounds when it was time as a signal for the advance. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Confederate infantry attack on Fort Sanders went in as planned early on the morning of Sunday, November 29th. The assault rolled forward until the rebel soldiers reached the ditch just in front of the fort's parapets. There, the rebel attack stalled. The three assault brigades hadn't received adequate instructions and all bunched together into the ditch in complete disorder. Far worse, however, was the nature of the ditch itself. Longstreet had insisted it would be shallow and easily crossed, thus the Confederates carried no scaling ladders or similar equipment. But the rebel soldiers discovered that one of the ways the Yankees had strengthened the fort's defenses was to substantially deepen the ditch, which was now six to eight feet deep with vertical sides. The earthen parapet, or scarp, rose at a 45-degree angle another six to eight feet, starting at the very edge of the ditch. 
and the Federals had also put rawhide-bound cotton bales atop the parapet as extra protection for the defenders. All of that meant that in most spots, the Confederates faced a climb of 15 to 20 feet to get out of the ditch, up the sides of the scarp, and to the top of the parapet. To add to the degree of difficulty, an all-night mist in freezing conditions now guaranteed that such parts of the scarp that weren't slick with wet clay were even slicker with ice. The rebel soldiers found that climbing up out of the ditch and to the top of the parapet was almost impossible under such conditions. Some of McClaw's men, by sheer determination and by boosting each other up on backs and shoulders, managed to somehow reach the top of the parapet, but in such small numbers that the Yankee defenders easily shot them down. The Federals also tossed shells with lit fuses over the parapet and down into the mass of rebels milling about in the ditch. Shortly after daylight, the feudal attack broke up and the Confederate soldiers streamed back to their own lines in defeat. A Federal wrote in his diary, quote, The slaughter was tremendous. The blood ran like a brook in the ditch, where the dead and dying were two and three deep. For the Confederates, the assault had been a disaster. The brutally lopsided casualty count told the tale, as the rebel attackers suffered around 810 killed, wounded, and missing, while the Federals defending Fort Sanders lost only 13 men. Hardly an hour passed after the beaten Confederates stumbled back to their own lines before Longstreet received a message from Richmond notifying him of Bragg's defeat at Chattanooga four days earlier. That did it as far as any further attack on Knoxville was concerned. Longstreet gave no further thought to trying to eject Burnside from the town by direct assault. The message from Richmond and another that arrived later from Bragg gave Longstreet the option of moving to rejoin Bragg and the defeated Army of Tennessee somewhere down in the vicinity of Dalton, Georgia. However, Longstreet decided it was impractical to attempt any such movement. Instead, Longstreet decided to keep his force there in the vicinity of Knoxville and see what happened. What happened, in fact, was the appearance of the advance guard of Sherman's relief force. As you guys will recall, just as soon as Ulysses S. Grant called off his pursuit of Bragg's retreating army after Claiborne's stand at Ringgold, he got troops moving north to rescue Burnside at Knoxville. Longstreet scouts detected the approach of the Federal Relief Force, and Old Pete gave no thought to staying and fighting it out. Instead, he prepared to pull his force further back into East Tennessee when Sherman's troops drew near. On the evening of December 3rd, Sherman's cavalry reached Knoxville. Believing Burnside to be in dire straits, Sherman pushed his men hard to cover the hundred miles between Chattanooga and Knoxville with all speed. His cavalry had indeed reached Knoxville in the four days Grant had directed, and the rest of his force marched in the next day. But what Sherman found when he reached Knoxville surprised him. 
On coming into town, he saw large herds of beef cattle and observed that this, quote, did not look much like starvation. You see, as Sherman had raced northward to Knoxville, based on Burnside's own declarations and the Lincoln administration's agitation over his predicament, Sherman believed Burnside and his men were at the point of boiling and eating their knapsacks. As he sat down to an impressive meal at Burnside's headquarters, Sherman couldn't help but comment that he'd been under the impression the Federals at Knoxville were starving. Not so, said Burnside. With the foodstuffs sent to Knoxville by the Unionists of East Tennessee, his force was actually well off to withstand any siege. One can imagine it was all Sherman could do to keep from rolling his eyes at that news. In any case, he offered to stay and help Burnside chase Longstreet out of Tennessee and back to Virginia, but Burnside said that wasn't necessary, that if two of Granger's divisions, about 10,000 men, were added to his force, then that would let him deal with old Pete. And so, while the rest of Sherman's troops marched back down to Chattanooga at a more reasonable pace, Longstreet's force which included not only his troops from the Army of Northern Virginia, but also several brigades of cavalry and most of a division of infantry belonging to Bragg's army, trudged northeastward, away from Knoxville, along roads paralleling the rail line that led to Virginia. Though Old Pete would lurk about in the far northeast corner of Tennessee until spring and toy with various schemes to go over to the offensive, his western adventure was, for all practical purposes, at an end when he marched away from Knoxville. With Bragg's defeat at Chattanooga and Longstreet's failure to eject Burnside from Knoxville, the six-month-long struggle for Middle and Eastern Tennessee in the second half of 1863 ended decisively in the Federals' favor. Never again would any substantial part of the state of Tennessee be considered Confederate territory in a military sense, although rebel forces would make several minor and one major foray into the volunteer state before the war ended. For all intents and purposes, by the end of 1863, Tennessee was firmly in Union control, which, in strategic terms, meant the Deep South now lay exposed to the advance of federal armies. Most of East Tennessee was free at last, much to the relief of Abraham Lincoln, and with Chattanooga as a secure forward base, the same Union troops that had won the struggle for the volunteer state in 1863 would open the fight for Georgia the following spring, with their target being Atlanta. The struggle for Tennessee made some of the officers who took part in it, while breaking others. We've already mentioned how it sent the careers of Grant and Bragg off in separate directions. For Grant, Chattanooga was the final proof necessary to show that his earlier successes were no flukes. The victor of Fort Donelson, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga was clearly the leading Union fighting general of the war. For Grant, the end stage of the contest for Tennessee became the launching pad 
to advancement to General-in-Chief of all the Federal Armies and the rank of Lieutenant General, previously held only by George Washington. The last six months of 1863, understandably, had a far more negative effect on the career of Braxton Bragg. After Chattanooga, he was finished as an Army commander. Once the Army of Tennessee was safely back at Dalton, Georgia, Bragg submitted his resignation and Jefferson Davis accepted it. However, Davis wasn't done with Bragg. Bragg remained active in Richmond as the Confederate president's chief military advisor and then served in the field again as a corps commander under Joe Johnston at the Battle of Bentonville in North Carolina in the spring of 1865. After returning to Virginia, Longstreet continued to be Robert E. Lee's old war horse until his wounding by friendly fire in May 1864 at the Wilderness and again after his recovery. Yet there was no further talk on this his part or anyone else's once he got back to the Army of Northern Virginia about his ever again assuming an independent command. His stock with the Davis administration had been lowered by his behavior toward Braxton Bragg and his subsequent treatment of his own subordinates. After his withdrawal from the vicinity of Knoxville, an embittered Longstreet had pursued vendettas against Lafayette McClaws and Evander Law. After removing McClaws from command, Longstreet went so far as to prevent the holding of court-martial proceedings at which McClaws hoped to vindicate himself. His behavior toward Bragg was certainly unseemly, and his treatment of McClaws and Law was ugly. But the blackest mark on Longstreet's record after his Tennessee venture was the result of his own failure as a general. It's hard to escape the conclusion that while James Longstreet's abilities were considerable within their limits, they didn't extend beyond carrying out the instructions of a capable commander. When Longstreet lacked an immediate, direct battlefield commander, or when he refused to obey the orders of the one he had, the results were uniformly dismal for the Confederacy. His failure in Lookout Valley and the debacle at Knoxville made that fact painfully obvious. Both sides had invested enormously in the struggle for Tennessee. The Federals had committed all or part of their three major field armies, the Army of the Cumberland, the Army of the Tennessee, and the Army of the Potomac, plus a fourth, the smaller Army of the Ohio. The rebels had probably risked even more by sending a large detachment from the Army of Northern Virginia to join Bragg in an all-out effort to not only save the parts of Tennessee the Confederacy still held, but also to reverse the course of more than a year and a half of defeat in the Western theater of the war. But at Missionary Ridge and at Knoxville, the Confederacy's hopes of turning the tide in the West were dashed to pieces. In the beaten army of Tennessee, as it trudged southward in its weary retreat to Dalton, Georgia, after the disaster on Missionary Ridge, one lieutenant blurted his doubts to his company commander, saying, Captain, this is the death knell of the Confederacy. If we cannot cope with those fellows with the advantages we had on this line, 
There is not a line between here and the Atlantic Ocean where we can stop them. Well, the captain couldn't deny the truth of that statement, but he wasn't ready to admit it either, so he simply hushed the lieutenant. The hard luck Army of Tennessee would go on fighting, but in the losing struggle for its namesake state, coming on the heels of the federal victories at Vicksburg and Gettysburg, one can argue that there could be found, in 1863, the beginning of the end of the Confederacy. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat, From the Appalachians to the Mississippi by Earl J. Hess. This is a re-recommendation, but it seems like an opportune moment to bring it up again, since if you're looking for a book that provides an excellent overview of the war in the Western theater, you'll be hard-pressed to do better than Hess's The Civil War in the West. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way. Just like our newest members, Lynn L., Martin N., Chris S., and Bob L. Jim, Bill E., Randy M., Frank E., and Nick A. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 148, about the Swamp Angel, which was the name given to an 8-inch Parrot rifle that the Federals used to bombard Charleston, South Carolina from a battery position over four miles away from the city in the summer of 1863. Just a reminder that if you join the Strawfoot Brigade, you not only get the members' episodes, but continue to receive all new regular episodes ad-free. Plus, of course, the warm, fuzzy feeling you get from helping support the podcast. Speaking of which, we want to be sure to thank Alexander D. for his recent donation. And then, as we start to wrap up this episode, we'll just give you a bit of a heads up as far as what's going to be coming up in the near future on the show. Well, next up, we're going back to Virginia to cover the Mine Run campaign. So, some Meade versus Lee but then we'll use some shows to look back on all that happened in 1863. Uh, It's been a while since we've been in 1863 for a while, but as you guys might recall, when we've reached the end of each year of the war here on the podcast timeline, we've taken the time to do some year-in-review episodes in which we've looked back at the events of 1861 and 1862 so far, And after Mine Run, we'll do 1863. And a lot happened in 1863, so we're actually really looking forward to this next installment of those Year in Review episodes. Uh, So there you go, just some stuff to look forward to. Finally, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the start and at the end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. 
As we release this show, the calendar has just rolled over from November to December, so tis the season, and Spiritwood has some lovely holiday music that you can check out to help put yourself in a Christmas state of mind. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.